2: What Was That Like? Contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head, because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Today we're going to hear firsthand from someone, a doctor actually, who experienced a severe, drawn-out case of the COVID-19 virus, also popularly known as the coronavirus. And of course, I have to preface this with the obligatory disclaimer. What you're going to hear on today's podcast is not medical advice, and you should not interpret it as medical advice. I am not a doctor. My guest Kimberly is a doctor, but she's not your doctor. She's only recounting her own experience with this virus, and she's not offering any medical advice here. If you have any questions about your health, you should consult your own physician. As you hear Kimberly talk about what she's been through recently, you'll see that one of her biggest concerns throughout this whole ordeal was the health of her parents, She was extremely concerned about them getting infected, and especially that she may have been the one who caused them to somehow contract the virus. Kimberly's just 39 years old, and most infectious disease experts will tell you that it's the senior population who are most at risk with this. So I decided to get some input from one of those seniors.
1: Hello, my name's Karen. I'm 77 years old, and I'm Scott's mom.
0: Yep, that's my mom. I'm an optimist, and I inherited that from her. She lives about five minutes from me in a condo that she and my dad bought about three and a half years ago. They moved in, and were only there about three days before my dad went in the hospital and passed away shortly after that. So she lives there alone, and we see her pretty regularly, but now we have this virus situation and we all have to stay home. What does she do all day? Well, she stays pretty busy.
1: I like to start my day by taking a walk. And when I get back home, I sometimes have a list of things that I want to accomplish during the day. Sometimes I do them, sometimes I don't. I'm retired, so I can do what I want.
0: Did I mention she stays busy?
1: I can mop the floors and dust, or um, I can get on my computer and play games. Um, I can call a friend, I can encourage them, and I get phone calls. I can do jigsaw puzzles on my computer. I can play games on my phone. I'm catching up on my, uh, on my reading. But
0: wait, there's more.
1: Reading my Bible through this year in chronological order. And I'm taking Bible courses on BBN. I do laundry. Sunday, we have lunch together. I have lunch together with family on Zoom. I do the ladies' Bible study on Tuesday night on Zoom. I do another ladies' Bible study on Wednesday night on Zoom. And Saturday morning, I do Weight Watchers on Zoom.
0: Holy cow, my mom is retired, and she's busier than I am.
1: (laughs) I don't do all that every day.
0: (laughs) At this point, she understands the importance of staying home. But there was this one time a couple of weeks ago...
1: One day on my way home from, my, from a doctor's appointment, I thought that I would just stop by a couple of places because I just needed a few things. I went in two stores, got what I wanted, and came home. And my mistake was in telling my family what I had done. That was a biggie. I should never have told them what I did because now I can't go out of the house.
0: So, yeah, she understands that now. And in fact, her concern now is that other seniors will understand it too.
1: I'm concerned for people my age. We have more health issues than the younger people. I just think that people my age should be really careful. That's probably my most concern. I know of a few people that have it, but they're not my family. They're just friends from a long time ago.
0: Hearing this from my own mom gave me a good context to frame my conversation with Kimberly. Her experience with COVID-19 has been pretty serious, and she had the added stress of worrying about her parents, as well as her husband and their young daughter. She kept a log of what happened each day, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 48. This whole situation is pretty difficult in different ways for different people. If you or a loved one is dealing with this now, I hope this helps. Throughout this ordeal, did you ever have a moment of fear that you wouldn't survive?
2: I did. I did. Um, It's happened a couple of times, and um, it was very scary.
0: What was happening at the time? I know we're going to go through your symptoms and, and what you, you know, what you experienced, but what was happening at the time that caused you to have that thought?
2: Well, I, I've never had, um, I think I had childhood asthma. I mean, I think that was probably just something that a doctor said because I was, um, not a particularly sporty child. And when I tried to play sports, I couldn't breathe well. (laughs) Um, but, um, I, I've, I've never had, um, fortunately, the experience of an asthma or attack or anything like that. So the sensation of uh, what I recently felt having a belt pulled tightly around your rib cage um, and in the sense that, and not the sense actually the feeling that your larynx and your, I mean, everything is tightening and closing in on you and you don't know how far that restriction is going to go. And you're feeling yourself forcing air into your lungs, and also the idea that, oh, you, you have to exhale, which is also not easy. Those moments, when those intense moments occurred, I did fear that things were going downhill.
0: I'm just hearing you describe it. I'm getting a little bit of a panicky feeling myself.
2: I am uh,
0: Man, you know, when you can't get your breath, it's, man, it's, uh, there's nothing more important at that, at that time.
2: Right, and, and I th- and you can also add probably since I would uh, have likely been watching the news when the, these things have, were happening, hearing stories and stories of thousands of people dying from this um, did not help.
0: Yeah, there's already a level of anxiety. All right, well, let's talk about you are a medical professional. Can you describe what you do?
2: So I have my doctoral degree in uh, neuropsychology. I I work with patients that have um, altered mental status. I get consulted all around uh, the the hospital. I'm a hospitalist. uh, And and if somebody comes in and they have uh, difficulty discerning where they are, they're disoriented, they're unable to focus, they're unable to make decisions, um, they just don't look quite right, they call me in. I, I do lots of consults like that, just kind of quick in and out differential diagnosis types of um, referrals. That That's my main job.
0: So obviously you're familiar with medicine, the hospital environment. You're also affiliated with the CDC emergency team, right?
2: I am. And uh, that was, <laughs> that really plays into my story because that is the piece that really messes with my own head, if you will, because early on in this pandemic, this pandemic at least, I was already doing things before anyone was even thinking about doing them uh, to the extent that people were making fun of me of being so cautious of becoming infected with, with any type of virus, let alone the, the COVID-19 virus um, that hadn't even come to our state yet.
0: Would you call yourself a germophobe?
2: Um, not in normal life, honestly, and that's the thing. I, I mean, it, here's the thing. It wouldn't, it, this wouldn't be so, to me, groundbreaking, at least, um, if I were a germaphobe. But I will say this in the context of this situation, 100%. So, when I need to turn on the germaphobe piece of me, I guess. So I guess it. I guess it's in there. It does live in there. Um, but I can turn it on. But I'm also someone who loves to go camping, and I mean, I mean backcountry camping, and you know. I mean, you're you're out in the wild with nothing. Um, I'm fine with that. I'm fine. You know, I like that kind of thing. But yes, so so to answer your question, really, in, in the context of what we're talking about, I absolutely did become one. And like you were pointing out, it was early on because of my my work with the the CDC um, right after Ebola is actually when that occurred in 2013.
0: That's what gives you a sort of an unusual or different perspective on this because since you were involved with that outbreak, the Ebola outbreak in uh, 2013 in Guinea, West Africa, you're already familiar with stuff like like biocontainment tents and wearing a hazmat suit and being fitted for a respirator. I mean, the general public would have no idea about using those things, but you're already familiar with them. Going into this,
2: yes, and I and the reason why that is such a it's it's it stands out so much to me is because I am a sheltered person who I mean I've never never seen anything like that. I never expected to be doing that kind of thing or being around that kind of thing, even within my field um, of practice. But when I The first time I saw, I will never forget it. I saw those tents go up and I thought, is this like, what is that? (laughs) What what is that tent outside of the emergency department? Um, And then I remember getting this message that I had to go be fitted for an elastomeric respirator. And I was assigned a hazmat suit, which um, is lovingly called a bunny suit because it's the big white plastic suit. And they have to fit you, obviously, uh, to some degree, because there can't be any possibility for air to come in. So I seriously considered my line of work after that. Um, but but I chose to keep going. We made it through. Um, fortunately, I, I mean, it sounds super cool. I, I would not say I was doing any type of frontline work really at the end of the day with that. But I did get involved after that with the CDC, and I became part of their emergency uh, preparedness team, which involves taking calls um, weekly. They're just um, group calls, and and it's discussing prevalence rates of things going on around the world. You know, what are we seeing? What types of infections are popping up? Is, is this something we need to be concerned about? So I kind of had an in, if you will, that this thing was not going to be the typical flu season or you know, something that we wouldn't remember.
0: And you were aware of this before. Like like right now, as we're talking, it's not at all unusual for people to be aware. And if you go out in public, you see people wearing masks and they're wearing gloves and they're distancing themselves and everything. But you were aware of that and starting to do those things but well before the public was <laughs> even even aware anything was going to happen. Yeah. Can you I'd like to I'd like for you to describe your sort of disinfecting process or what you would do, especially at home, to try to avoid some type of infection coming in?
2: I have been following the outbreak in Wuhan since January um, on these calls. In late February, the director of the CDC got on the call, which never happens, <laughs> and had really upped the urgency and tone of these calls and eventually told us that he had sat down with his family and had this conversation about how there was going to be a significant disruption to their lives, meaning social isolation was likely going to occur. They talked about teleeducation, telehealth services, you know, really trying to keep certain institutions in place, but not in the public sector. That is when I decided, okay, I'm applying these infectious uh, control methods now, because from what I'm hearing in Wuhan and the risk factors, I have two of the dearest people in my life, my parents, who are at high risk of this of having severe complications, if not death, um, and I, I, I feared certain death for my father if he were to contract the virus, um, because he meets every criteria for the serious underlying health condition. So, I um, I would say probably beginning in late February, certainly probably in the first week into March, I became the germaphobe. But um, <laughs> who you're referring to? <laughs> So uh, here are some things I did. I used blue painter's tape. I carried it around with me and I measured exactly 6.5 feet from my chair or my position in the room to where my patient would be evaluated. And if for some reason the exam room was not big enough to complement that new rule of mine, I refused to uh, do any evaluations there. So um no one was able to cross cross uh, their their part uh, of the line, and I stayed on my so there were, there were two different lines, obviously, and I said it was for their safety and mine, which was true. so this was going on right at the beginning of March. I wouldn't even walk in hallways where someone else was walking or even appearing to think about walking. I would stop in the middle of my walk and act like i had a call coming in i mean i felt silly but i was really concerned i began sanitizing everything any surface where you know this virus could have have landed and particularly anything metal or cold anything around me anything that the bathroom's you know almost 200 feet away from me, I'd go and do their door handles. (laughs) Um, I, at the desktops, keyboards, landline phone receivers, my cell phone, thermostat buttons, my dictation microphone, the faucets in the bathroom. And when I say sanitized, I'm not talking about the typical spray you can buy at the grocery store. I was using hospital grade cavi wipes, um, which I mean, they're EPA registered efficacy studied as a product that we use in the ORs. And, and even on there, you know, coronavirus has existed for many years. It's, it's a group of, of, of viruses. But because COVID-19 falls within that category, right on the product, it says that it can uh, reduce human coronavirus by 99.9% on hard surfaces. So that made me feel good. I started wearing scrubs to the hospital, and when I got home, I had a decontamination area in my garage. I would take every last piece of clothing off, my shoes, my hair tie, everything, and would leave it in the garage for 24 hours, and then after that, it would be str- you know right into the washing machine. I showered each and every time I left the house. My hair was and is probably still dry from washing it every day and we we would even wipe off our mailbox not you know people don't think about what they're touching um any touchable surface we would wipe down my husband was wearing a mask and gloves to the grocery store we would wipe down our cereal boxes the cardboard ones and they became a very beautiful holographic uh <laughs> I dye, um, from these, uh, these wipes. And now of course I, I didn't have the cavi wipes, uh, at home. I do actually have cavi spray at home, which is an odd thing. And we did use it, but I mean, but with bleach, I mean, this, this went on before it was cool to do it with, with the coronavirus. I mean, we looked like we were losing our minds pumping gas. We wore latex gloves Um, We wore latex gloves to receive mail. We would not touch our mail for 48 hours. We would not touch Amazon packages for 48 hours. Um, And even after that, we would wipe them down. And we were trying to make every, apply every preventative measure we could, really with the idea of keeping my parents alive. I I hadn't even let them leave their home for two weeks before I started doing that even.
0: Did they object to that at all?
2: My father, who is a Vietnam veteran and um, and the, the cool, like, kind of badass, I, I apologize for the word, but the badass kind, you know, I mean, he deserves to be able to do whatever in the world he wants to do. He, um, well, I have to say any Vietnam veteran, any veteran, it, it would be, would qualify for that term, I should say. I love, I love my veterans, but he is not one to receive direction well, (laughs) particularly if it impedes upon his freedom, which he has fought for. And, um, you know, it took a few times, but I think he could tell that this was not a flexible option. I kind of coined the term that they were voluntold uh, that they would begin their home isolation And they they have, and they uh, they still are uh, now at least forty five days into this.
0: Were you aware of any exposure that you had to this, or do you know how you may have gotten it?
2: To this day, I have absolutely no clue. There is no one I know, not one patient, not one colleague, not anywhere that now on the news it says you know, oh, this county um, even. Oddly enough, the county where my parents live, which is right next to mine, was one of the first to have a a big explosion in South Carolina of coronavirus community spread. Um, And we don't go there. I mean, we don't, I mean, we don't, it's not our, first of all, we don't go out. We have a child, a a young child. (laughs) We, we really have no life, um, and so um, I mean, when you
0: got us to Chuck E. Cheese or something, right? I,
2: <laughs> we don't even do that, to be honest, um, we're we're helle- we're We don't. We're picky about our food. I mean, we're, when, I th- when I was thinking about going out when I just said that to you, I was thinking about where do I stop to pump gas and where do we get our groceries? <laughs> that's what I mean. So we don't even pump gas or get our groceries there. And that's all we do besides work. So I, I ha- no. so I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue.
0: What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, Cook Unity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new.
2: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember, hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did.
2: And in the end, what will I become? Senua Saga. Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. I, how in the world could this happen to me? And, and when people would make fun of me, it would make me feel secure and, and much better. I'd be like, ha look at me, look at me. It's so obvious that I am so germ free and that I have such respiratory hygiene and that I, all these things. And, you know, they had no clue. We were wiping down our magazines with bleach at home. I thought, how in the world could this happen to me? And, and up until maybe even two minutes after I got the call that I had COVID-19 positive findings on my nasopharyngeal swab. I, I don't think it sank in until then. I, I mean, it's, I think it's still sinking in, even though I feel like I've almost died twice.
0: And then you had a sort of a last visit with your parents, with you and your daughter. Yes. What was that like?
2: Uh, Yeah, I continued to follow these calls, Um, obviously. I mean, I I was doing much more than that at that point. I mean, that was my really, my only inside, inside uh, knowledge. But I could tell just by, I mean, anybody could watching the news, looking at this on the maps that we watched to show where positive cases are popping up. You know, it was creeping toward the U.S. It was creeping, you know, it was coming and I mean, there was no denying that. So I kind of did a self-assessment of my symptoms and I decided I needed to go see my parents. Uh, you know, I hadn't seen them for two weeks already. And I just thought, you know, by the way, they keep our, we. she just turned four, but at the time, a three-year-old, um, they keep her during the day, every day when we go to work. And of course, because she's three, I can't expect her to practice social distancing. I can't expect her to apply all of these rules that we were applying. Um, and so it just it just didn't really seem to make sense that we would keep her going to their home. Uh, you know, she could be a, a vessel for the disease to travel, you know, if I were to get it or my husband, but if I were to get it, of course, I'm at the hospital and then she gets it and she takes it to them. So anyway, I felt great. I decided I would go see them. Um, I did. And, um, it was, um, I think it was Monday, Monday, March 16th, my big decision to go see them. (laughs) Um, now uh, my, our daughter had been going over there every day still, um, until then. So I said, let's, you know, I'm going to take you to happy in Grammy's house. That's what she calls them. And, you know, you can, this is the last day and, but we'll see them again very soon. And so I dropped her off, which I normally don't do. And I did not go anywhere near them, but I was in the home and I didn't touch anything. I know exactly where I stood. I'll never forget it. And I kind of leaned up against the like a counter at one point point. And I didn't hug them. I didn't do anything. Um, I was. I had obviously no symptoms. I wasn't coughing, sneezing. I felt fine. When I left, I even said, I said, Mom, you have to promise me the area where I was. I need you to wipe it down with Clorox wipes just in case, because when anyone talks, we have respiratory droplets. Okay. I mean, it seemed ridiculous, but she did. She did it. And then that was it. It just so happened the next very next day. Tuesday, the 17th, St. Patrick's Day. That was my day one of COVID-19 symptoms.
0: Tuesday, March 17th, day one.: Yes, day okay. one. And what were your symptoms?:
2: um, And it was first thing in the morning. I woke up and I had a sore throat. Um, my, I had a full feeling in both of my ears, very much like you would have with, you know, when you're getting sick. I did take my temperature, and I had a low-grade fever, um, which was it kind of fluctuated between 99.8 and 100. And and I want to make a point about that. For most people, they watch the news, they get a message from their doctor, and one of the symptoms that everyone is supposed to be looking for is, do you have a fever? You know, take your temperature. Take your temperature. You know, what, what happens if someone doesn't know, they, what do they do? They Google it. Uh, what is the temperature? What, what you know? How do you know if it's normal? Well, it's a very subjective measurement. Body temperature is very, you know, we say idiopathic. It's unique to each person. I run very low in terms of my, my body temperature. I'm that person who's always cold and uh, annoying. Um, I'm the person that's, you know, I I have very low blood pressure. I'm just... I guess a Zen person. <laughs> um, I I don't know. It takes a lot to get me to sweat, even even when I work out or something. So ninety nine point eight uh, to one hundred was scary to me. I mean that when I say low grade, I mean it's still technically considered that, but that's clearly a a symptomatic uh, presentation. I mean that's not good for me. More more beyond that, I had burning in my upper chest, um, which was not like anything I've ever had before. It was at, right under my collarbone um, on both sides. And every time I would respirate, I mean, every time I would take a deep breath, that burning, it, would, it was like giving fuel to a fire, if you will. Like if you blew on some hot coals and you saw them light up, that is the, the visual I get.
0: Would you compare it to heartburn, or how is it similar to that if at all
2: i so heartburn for me is more centralized um i have had heartburn kind of travels up and down this traveled laterally it it went it went all the way across the top of my chest and was not centralized at all it wasn't deep it was very um much, almost like just right under the skin, and the heartburn seems to persist at the same, for me at least, <laughs> level of intensity. Um, and it's just there. There's nothing you can do to make it better. It just, ugh. What did I eat? I bet you know. I better sit up or take one of those pills. This was clearly exacerbated by respirations. Clearly, something that was to do with breathing, and of course. I thought I was being psychosomatic because I can't, now that is a term I identify with, not necessarily the germaphobe at my baseline, but I am the person who reads the back of the pill bottle and I will have every one of those symptoms that I read. (laughs) Um, and, And not only do I know this, everyone who knows me well knows that is true. I mean, it is almost ridiculous. And, and, and here's the thing, psychosomatic people, it's, I mean, it's a real thing. I mean, you, people can have conversions of blindness. I mean, it's just one of those annoying things about me. So I thought, are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, sure. You're having burning in your chest with respirations. I mean, I was so mad at myself for being so ridiculous. So I did nothing. I really thought I was, now here's the thing. I also did not go see any patients. I stayed home. So I, in the back of my head, I thought, "Mm, this is weird. You know, that with the fever was very odd. The, uh, but, but, you know, I, I still, I wanted to see what was going on. So the next day, Wednesday, the 18th, which was day two, I ended up calling my doctor and I, I decided to get a test. Um, You know, this had not gone away. I couldn't distract myself and feel better. (laughs) Um, So I went. Um, And here's the thing. I want to clarify this, too. At that point, particularly, you know, the 18th of March, it was very difficult to get a test we didn't have tests, many at least. Um, The reason why I was able to get the test and also get such a quick turnaround is because of my role as a hospitalist and that I have a frontline job where I see a lot of patients. And so it was a different way of processing the test. My test was sent directly to DHEC versus a private lab. Um, And so that kind of speaks to to how wide why that that happened so quickly for me, which I'm thankful for. So I went and did that.
0: Can you describe what is the testing process actually like?
2: Sure. So <laughs> I, I think I was watching one of those press conferences with the president, who um, had had said something about it's not a pleasant experience, and I thought you are right; it is not a pleasant experience. And uh, you know, and it's it's a nasopharyngeal swab. And you know, I would encourage anyone who's not familiar with with that to just Google that term, and you'll see um, how far back this Q-tip looking thing, which is longer than a Q-tip, add like twenty of those, uh, <laughs> glue, them, glue them together end by end. Maybe not twenty, but but certainly uh, ten, maybe. And it goes way, you know, it goes through. So it goes through your nose. I should, I guess, I should explain. So they take that and they they insert it into one pick one a nostril um, and it goes back um, to re- get a good swab of your mucous membranes deep back um, in the nasopharyngeal region so I mean it's it's almost like under your eye I mean it's horrible but yeah it's it's just not a pleasant feeling and it's just counterintuitive to what you want happening to you particularly when you're not feeling well um, you know your brain is thinking that's not supposed to go in there and Okay, that's far enough. That's far enough. That's far enough.
0: Um, we're gonna have the video of when you got the test. I know you have that video. <laughs> we'll, I'll put yeah. that on the I'll put that on the website. But I know I could see that you were instinctively you <laughs> were backing your head was backing up because they kept yeah. you know the person kept pushing it further and further back.
2: And, and you're right, it was an instinctive thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Normally you don't stick long things into your nose, and so did it trigger something? Did it like like a gag response or? just extreme discomfort.
2: I think it's literally, um, and I'm trying to actually think of what part of the brain I should be able to tell you this. I mean, I would it would be multiple parts of the brain, but um, that, that go off. And it's like, you don't really have, I mean, I obviously knew exactly what I was going to do. I even had made a comment to my husband. I think that's why he had the video ready um, of how horrible this was going to be. And it's not like it surprised me, but I think The process, you're just, it's just an intuitive retreat, you know, fight or flight response. It's my autonomic nervous system saying, uh uh. (laughs) So, yeah, that's what was happening. And of course, I don't know if the audio picks it up, but he's in the background saying, don't pull back, don't pull back. (laughs) I'm thinking, oh, let's do it to you now. Yeah, easy for
0: him to say. Right.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: You didn't get the results that same day, though.
2: No. Um, Now, apparently, it was that day that cases started to really pick up in South Carolina. So now, again, but we're still talking early on. I mean, I think there were maybe 20 cases the day before. And I believe the day that I got tested It had doubled to like four. Well, this isn't an exact double, but I think it was 48. I remember seeing that number. Um, and, and hopefully I'm not way off on that, but, but the reason why I'm saying it that is they had a six hour turnaround time for DHEC just before I got there. And then when I got, when I got there, they had said, yeah, more like 72 hours. Turned out I got it, I think within 48 hours or so, but, but correct. I had to wait. And in that waiting period, on the 19th of March, which was Thursday and day three of my symptoms, I felt like such a silly pants. (laughs) I say that because I have a toddler. We don't say bad words. Um, So I felt like a silly pants. I felt guilty. I felt embarrassed. I was thinking I am... This is just. I know how you are. You know, this is. What I was saying to myself. You know, these. You. You know, you don't have COVID nineteen. I mean, I had colleagues telling me, "You do not have COVID nineteen. You are worrying. You are. You know, this is what you do. You." <laughs> um, and I was reassured. I mean, of course, they didn't tell me with a hundred percent. You know, uh, assurance, but. I mean, I was neurotic. We just all decided I'm neurotic, that I have wasted a test. I mean, no one was being mean to me, but I was being mean to myself. This is ridiculous, ridiculous. So going into day four, which was Friday the 20th, I'm waiting all day, nothing, nothing. I'm thinking, oh gosh, they probably got it back. It's negative. They're having to call all the poor people who have this. Finally at 330 30. And of course, my symptoms are still there, but I'm thinking I'm crazy. I'm, you know, it's because I'm still watching the news all the time. I mean, I'm really into this, trying to track what's going on. 3.30, I get this phone call. I mean, I can hear it right now. It was like a colleague of my doctor in the in the same practice. And he said, um, how are you feeling? And I thought, okay, he's either asking me that because he want, he's, he's going to, um, you know kind of make fun of me later on when all this passes <laughs> or or he's concerned about how I'm feeling and it kind of sounded like he was concerned about how I was feeling and I was like why is he being you know what what is this and I I said I still have the symptoms what's going on he said well your 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 results are positive and I said what you, i mean i, I the next few minutes are a blur, honestly. I mean, it's not not anything like getting a cancer diagnosis by any means. And I have fortunately never had anything like that. But, um, you know, I hear stories and patients tell me about after they're told about a certain diagnosis, Alzheimer's disease, for example. The fa- You know, I do that. I do that very often. That's right, right up my alley.
0: And so you always remember that moment when you were told.
2: Yes. And here's the thing, and I'm cognizant of that when I give serious diagnostic feedback to patients and their families, I think whatever I'm saying right now, they're not going to remember. Um, or, you know, so, so I now, you know, to some extent, I've, I've experienced that, but I wasn't worried about me. I am, and, and I'm pretty sure he, of course, gave me the right instructions of you need to go to another room in your house you know, you are now formally quarantined. You, you know, should be eating on paper plates and with plastic utensils. You should use a different bathroom. You cannot be around your husband. Or, I, I mean, something was being said. I'm sure that's exactly what it was. And later on, this was clarified that that is what he said. But all I could say over and over again was, my parents, my parents, my parents, oh my gosh, my parents, I was just with them. My parents, I have just killed my parents. I mean, it, th- this this person who called me was so friendly. He said, "Do you want me to call your parents?" I said, "Yes," <laughs> um, and it was just horrifying. And there was nothing I could do. That's the thing. I mean, there usually, no matter what's going on, I can call someone who's a specialist in the field, or you know, I have a friend who has a friend who has a friend who you know, is at Johns Hopkins who uh, wherever, and we can, we're going to make this happen. We'll get you there overnight. We'll, we'll get you admitted. We'll do this. No, there was not one thing I could do, but wait for 14 days to see if they were going to get sick and likely die. Yeah, that was a very tough day for me.
0: So you were immediately isolated from everyone. How did that work in your case?
2: Well, (laughs) If you've seen the video, which I believe you have, um, and uh, hopefully the listeners will get a chance to see my lovely video that my husband took, you'll see I'm sitting next to my three-year-old at that time. I
0: you're talking about during the test
2: during the test
0: right because you were in, yeah it was a drive-through you were in the car yeah
2: I was in the car my husband was driving we I mean she's a three-year-old she mommy rocks her to sleep every night um, I I knew at that point the typical onset of symptoms um, in terms of how they present, it's usually day five or six after you have contracted the virus. And so I started thinking back, you know, I've already exposed them to this virus. Now, here's the thing. The rule is that you should quarantine no matter what. We did attempt to do so. I will tell you, it became such a Dramatic, horrible thing for the three-year-old. And I will also say, concurrent with my fever on day one, my husband and child also had fevers. And so they were, especially with, with toddlers and children, they can get very high fevers. She didn't, this is not a high fever, um, but but usually um, what my pediatrician friends tell me and her pediatrician, and what I have, have come to know from just being a mom you look at their behavior i mean you can have a child with a 101 temperature and or 102 and and you would never know it unless you took it that's a good thing and so she was not lethargic she i mean she was actually happier than ever cuz mommy was around so there was not a concern in that regard about them having it we kind of assumed that we just had something else altogether as a family but once i got diagnosed i I assume, and I still do, and here's the thing, at this point, I pretty much, I would bet a lot of money. But <laughs> I mean, they certainly have developed the antibodies at this point. Um, so I, I mean, they, they have never become symptomatic. They, I think that they are two examples of people who would be silent carriers. And I think the, just, we had just so happened to take their fever because I would, I mean, sorry, take their temperature because I wasn't feeling well. And that is how we, incidentally discovered that they had fever. So we all agreed that they were exposed already. I mean this thing is so contagious, 10 times more contagious than the flu.
0: For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it
2: done. Um, there was no way. So once we gave that a try and it was making things way worse for everyone, <laughs> we did not follow that. Now, And I don't advise anyone else to do what I did. I'm just being honest. And thank goodness it worked out okay for us. But no, and here's the thing. We have stayed in our home. We haven't left our home except for twice to go to the hospital. So we're certainly keeping anyone else who hasn't been exposed safe. But we knew it was in the home. We had already been exposed. So we did not go through the typical quarantine procedure within our own home.
0: In some cases, it's just not possible. or And it, it really wasn't like you said. It wasn't feasible. They've, they've already been exposed.
2: And they already had fevers. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: So do you think are are you of the feeling then that they just each of them had a, a very mild case of it and recovered and
2: I, yeah and and here's the thing not even mild asymptomatic other than the fever not one cough not one change in energy level nothing
0: you took the brunt of it for the family.
2: <laughs> hey, I I would do it a million times um and I'm thankful for the way it turned out and honestly um it's funny your sh- the name of your show what was that like I almost feel like for this episode we need to change it to what is that like cuz I'm clearly much better I would not have been able to formulate a full sentence even a, even a week ago um I I certainly would not have been able to be so talkative um <laughs> but um without losing my my breath but
0: I know you've been, you've been through the ringer for sure. Yeah. Yes. Can you just kind of take us through from that point? You've had what, like 28 days of symptoms yes. and obviously you're a lot better now, but you went through quite a bit. Can you just kind of take us through what happened from that point?
2: Sure. So, um, and, and I'll kind of condense some things and I've been keeping a journal just because, I mean, this is, I, I mean, the, First of all, that's what we would do if I had a patient. I would ask the patient to do this because this is a novel virus um, and we're learning about it. I mean, anyone, literally anyone in the world is on this journey with us. You know, we along the way we've learned so many things. So I've become uh, I'm not, not wanting to, but I've become an expert in, in being a consumer of this. Um, so I am keeping track of it. Let's see. So we move on. I, you know, I get this, I I the, the initial few days, uh, initial days, at least I should say, I mean, I am just frantically calling my parents every morning. They, uh, you know, of course, I had them on a routine where they would take their temperatures, <laughs> you know, and, and alert me to any symptom that either of them were having. I mean, when I say their, their temperatures were were beautiful every time they've reported them to me. I mean, there's been not one scare. And you know, as we get older, our body temperature lowers. I mean, that's just in general what happens. So they were running in the low 97 range, both of them every morning. You know, they have seasonal allergies. Uh, We're originally from Florida. So um, after moving a, a couple states up With the pollen, it's ridiculous. And, you know, in South Carolina, everything's covered in in yellow powder this time of year. So that complicates it for everyone. Oh, I think I have allergies. I'm sneezing. You know, that's been a problem, honestly. But their their coughs and sneezes or, uh, you know, runny noses were normal. And so there was nothing that was going on. So every morning I would call and say, what are your symptoms? What are your symptoms? And that was my main focus. Then I would, of course, focus on myself and think, okay, what's going on with me?
0: Yeah, regardless of what's happening with you, hearing that they're still okay is the best news you could get.
2: Yes. Well, and here's the thing, because of my field, I'm thinking I, I mean, the worst thing, me knowing I have the virus, I'm an only child. And so you know, I have the fortune of having ca- parents who care so much about me, and so if I am sick, my mom wants to know I'm okay. And so the stress of that, I was thinking that's going to make her immune system, you know, um, decrease. And uh, so I was trying to really guard her from from anything. And honestly, when we would FaceTime, I would pick certain times of the day where I could breathe well and. I would try to make myself appear like I was okay until they, I, I mean, I did that for two weeks. It was very difficult, but every day, every morning I felt that belt like pressure around my lungs, like something was sitting on my, on my ribs, not my chest, my ribs, my chest would burn, continue to burn, but like something was sitting on my ribs and that would worsen if I were to try and lay back anything further than a 45 degree angle. Thank goodness we have one of those beds that kind of does all the electronic stuff. We had to have it up all the time. I was in bed uh, on, on day four. That's when the shortness of breath really began and I could not really lay back at all and breathe um, at the same time, which was very scary. This continues to go on. I'm staying in bed. I'm really trying to help my body heal by not I mean, not that I could get up and do anything anyway, but I mean, I was, you know, making sure I'm taking my vitamins, I'm eating how I'm still eating. Um, at that point, I had not lost my my sense of smell or taste. And I really, other than that stuff, I was, do. you know, I was hanging in there. Um, I thought, okay, this is not going to be a big deal, because this goes away for people. I mean, I'm seeing it on the news, I'm hearing it in these medical reports, but Patients my age, i'm thirty nine I don't smoke or drink. I have not one health problem. i there's nothing. <laughs> you know, this is supposed to be no big deal. So day six, which was uh, the twenty second of March, um I call my parents. they're doing all right. I'm like, all right, here we go. this this is going okay. you know that was kind of that was kind of a mile marker because most people get sick by then. Most people show symptoms by then. so that was somewhat of a relief, but I was not going to be relieved until we hit day 14, because that's the true incubation period. But I got the letter from DHEC. I got the call from DHEC on day six. They said, we're going to arrest you if you leave your house. Um, you know, they, they have to send you the formal letter. I've never had a letter like that, so I'll always keep it. But it said, it was concerning because it said, you can't leave your house uh, until seven days after symptoms begin, and three days of having no fever. And it really did not go into much detail. Now, at that point, I, I mean, I really was not feeling well. I was not sleeping well, I should add, too, obviously. I'm, I couldn't lay flat. I'm, I'm, I like to sleep on my stomach or my side. I was concerned only because I, have having followed, followed the course of the virus at that point, I knew that most, I mean, the virus was long you know persisted a lot longer than what they were talking about and i mean at that point there was talk about symptoms worsening on day 8 or 9 after symptoms had appeared to resolve for a lot of people and so i thought why are they sending that out to people people are going to go back out into the community and reinfect people but you know i i just didn't have enough energy at that point to, to become, uh, you know, to combat it. Um, I did send it to some colleagues with concern and with hope that they would look into that. But, but anyway, I got the letter, I started having some nausea. Other than that symptoms go on day seven, I start getting some nausea and uh, more nausea and chills. I was not doing well on that day. So we're a week into it. My husband gets the stethoscope and listens um, as best as he can. And um, I have something called atelectasis, which is kind of a shuddering in the, in, in my, when, he, when, I, when I breathe in. That's something that can happen when people are in bed for a long time. And so we didn't want that to develop into pneumonia. So we call the doctor, um, we talk about getting go, going to the hospital at that point. I couldn't say more than three words without getting dizzy and blacking out. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to think about what your body does on a normal day compared to that amount of decompensation. Three words was like a marathon, and when I say blackout, I mean you know how you get the peripheral vision loss. Um, I don't know if you've had. Okay, so you know it's coming, and so you have to. I mean, so I didn't particularly pass out, but I would have if I would have tried to push through. But
0: if you went to if you went to the fourth word right?
2: Exactly. Fourth word, you're done.
0: That's a, you know, I just, I find that amazing because I mean, you can say a whole sentence. It seems like it's zero effort at all, right? But just a few words and obviously you're pushing air, you know, forming the words, it's coming out your mouth. And so there is some effort, but we don't even think about it, but it's amazing that it could have that effect on you.
2: Right. Right. But even then I I thought there's no way this is going to be so bad for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and at this, and I have to say too, I really did not want to go to the hospital because I was worried that my parents would worry. And I know that sounds. And here's the thing: this is not good self care skills, by the way. Like I, I do not do what I do. I couldn't live with the idea that they would know I'm in the hospital where you can have no visit. I mean, not that they would visit, but I mean, it, it would just have been horrible. There's no one that they could call to even see if I'm still alive. I mean, it would have been horrible. So I'm trying to really push this thing and stay at home. I mean, I couldn't walk and talk at the same time at all. No talking when you're walking or standing upright. So I don't go to the hospital. The next day comes, the symptoms persist. Uh, the next day comes symptoms persist. And that is a uh, day nine where I start having almost, I mean, a mix between disorientation and hallucinations at night. And of course, this is really right up of my alley. Um, and I, so I'm assessing myself as this is happening. Sometimes and I'm thinking, is this delirium? And it was scary. I mean, I was, scared i mean it was scary stuff misperceptions of things
0: and this is while you were sleeping like were these dreams or were you awake when this was happening
2: that's the part that's that was so disturbing they were not i was having very vivid dreams but this was happening it would start around nine o'clock at night and i would not fall asleep until midnight so it would be like you would think you would see something out of the corner of your eye and oh gosh But then you would look and you would see, like you would misperceive. Uh, I'll give an example. One time I looked, I was rocking my three-year-old and I looked down at her and her eyes looked like they were 10 times bigger (laughs) than they were. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but I'll tell you when it happened, my heart started racing and I knew it wasn't real when it was happening. And I thought, what is my brain doing? I mean, this is... And they looked like the LOL surprise dolls, um, eyes you see on TV. And it was just remarkable to be going through that. Um, And it would worsen as the night would go on. And then I would come out of it um, in the early morning hours that started. And I was almost embarrassed to tell anyone um, because I had not heard of anything like that.
0: (laughs) That's not a symptom that you hear about for most people that have COVID-19.
2: Right. But I will say now we are starting to hear about it. Yeah, we are starting to hear about it, um, that this is a, a multi-systemic traveler in the, in the body, this virus. And so it has been known now to affect people cognitively in in, in multiple different ways. So um, but at, the, at that point, I was really embarrassed <laughs> that this was happening. And by the way, I did not have a high fever. I was not, it was not true delirium. It was not dreams per se. I have a, I think it's some. it was something called hypnopopnic and hypnogognic hallucinations which are two very long and nerdy terms, but th- that has since dissipated and gone away. So I don't have that anymore, but that did start at that point, which was not a nice thing to layer on top of everything else.
0: When you, when that happened, were you more scared at what you were perceiving or were you intrigued, uh, from a clinical point of view as a doctor?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say the latter on that. Um, I was analyzing this process. I was discussing it with, um, a select Couple of colleagues um, who I trust very much, and we were kind of just processing it. You know, is this a dopaminergic process in the brain? You know, I would say I would definitely say the latter. I mean, I I was it was kind of exciting to think about. As long as this doesn't go overboard, I kind of have some insight into what patients experience when they are psychotic.
0: Right. Yeah, it gives you a unique perspective into what they might be experiencing. Yeah, that's interesting.
2: Absolutely. And I'll just kind of uh, summarize, go on here and just kind of um, get to the exciting parts of my timeline. Day The next day, I go to the hospital. Uh, you know, Now, this is not the typical go to the hospital that we're all used to. You got to call ahead. You got to say, oh, I'm one of these positive cases. Fortunately, I had the coveted N95 masks. I had a few of those. And so I was able to wear one. I wore a surgical mask over that. Um, I wore Gloves. I mean, I kind of suited up to protect the the doctors and caregivers there at the hospital before I went in. But I woke up that day, and my pulse ox, my pulse oximeter had, uh, you know, measured that I was not getting good oxygen. It was in the low 90s. I just was not doing well, and so I needed to go. Before I left the house, my saturation, which is you know how much how much oxygen you have. Um, and your system was down in the 80s, which is not good. I had fatigue, dizziness, I was that that lacking out peripherally was happening. And I was in a lot of respiratory distress. So I got to the hospital and they did the chest x ray, they did an EKG, they did a, a really good workup, they took my blood And I, I stabilized, Um, you know, I, it was, it was kind of like an episode I had had all morning. And then once I got the hospital and, and got settled and the tests were being run, I kind of evened out um, and and got back to my, I guess my baseline on day 11, whatever that was, (laughs) you know, I mean, I wasn't back to normal by any means, but I wasn't in such distress. So um I didn't have pneumonia or anything remarkable at that point.
0: They got you stabilized so you didn't have to be admitted.
2: No, I stayed there I stayed in the E D um and and they watched my my Pulse Ox, you know, and it would go down if I were to move around or if I were to do anything um Trend US, quote unquote. But um, no, there was no reason at that point. Now, here's the thing. In any other situation, I would have been, they did say, let's, you know, we can uh, observe you overnight. And I said, no, I'll come back if I need to. But any other situation, I certainly would have, you know, probably been admitted and kept, but this was the kind of situation they wanted people in and out unless it was dire because, you know, they never knew when they were getting an influx in patients. And also my, my immune system was compromised at that point And I didn't want to pick up anything else from the hospital. So moving into that weekend, I, I really start to try and move around as much as I can, because I mean, I did have atelectasis. Um, that was a positive finding on my my exam. um, And so we didn't want that to move into a pneumonia presentation. That weekend, um, which was the 28th and 29th of March, that was day 12 and 13. That's when the loss of smell and taste began. (laughs) I started also having uh, pain in my neck and my back, severe headaches every morning, every single morning. And of course, I lost my appetite because nothing was exciting anymore. And that has persisted, maybe not at the same level of severity, but I still don't have that back, my taste and smell.
0: I've heard from other people that it takes a while for that to come back, even after recovery.
2: Oh, how long do they say? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, I think it varies,
2: yeah, well, clearly, this that's the way this virus is. Um so, hey, that's been the least of my problems. But it's just an odd, another odd thing. But you have to think about it, you know, with the the, the cortical activity and the brain being involved, taste and smell, you know, is it is it my taste buds? Or I mean, is it with the smell? I mean, where where is what's the source of the impairment? Is it you know, based in the brain, is it? So, of course, this is my thinking. I mean, I, <laughs> instead of saying that doesn't taste good, or I start thinking, hmm, what's going on cortically in the brain?
1: Right.
0: But if you, but if you lose your sense of smell, then don't you automatically, I mean, if you hold your nose while you eat something, you can't taste it, right?
2: Absolutely. Those things are very much um interrelated, but you can have, I mean, you can have certain strokes and, and conditions can cause one or the other, but you're right. If, if, if your smell isn't there, things are not going to taste the same. So anyway, going into the next um, week, which was Monday, the 14th, it was doctor's day, which was not very exciting for me. Um, I remember last doctor's day, I was presented with a nice little gift and, you know, I was with my the staff and um, anyway, it was just a very different day, but I started feeling better. I started feeling a little better that day. I was up and I was actually doing some things around the house, not like anything crazy. Like I would take my my cup to the sink and you know. <laughs> um, but this was a big deal. And yeah, just
0: in progress.
2: Yeah, and I I felt better. I had a little energy, and of course me, I I have this whole discussion with my husband that I am developing the antibodies. I am now going to be immune. I'm going to volunteer. For frontline work in New York City, I am going to go to the hot zones. I'm gonna be, I, you know, I, I'm so optimistic. I'm like just having these exciting plans and ideas because I, I'm starting to feel better, not because I was manic or anything. I mean, I just felt better. I slept well and I was able to, you know, I fell asleep easily. I, I didn't have any of those weird experiences. So things were going well. I, well, I, I did, I think in the middle of the night, I did have some odd dreams, but it wasn't like it was before the next day I get up and my fever is the highest I've had. (laughs) I think, Oh, I, you know, did I overdo it? You know, I mean, I really wasn't doing anything crazy, but my limbs feel like particularly my arms, that I have 500 pounds on each arm. It was the weirdest feeling, My headache is the worst it's ever been. I have pressure and heat behind my eyes. Then the pain in my neck and back is intense. I still have no taste or smell. It's the worst it's been. My appetite is gone. I'm very frustrated at that point because I had such a good day the day before. However, at the same time, it was official that my parents were not going to be inadvertently murdered by me. They had met the, the mile marker of the 14-day incubation period, and they were asymptomatic. And that got me through that day. I also decided to tell them that day how bad I felt. <laughs> and they were not particularly happy with me from keeping it from them. But that was, that was a remarkable day. Those symptoms persisted. The next night, actually, I had to ask for help pulling the blankets over me. I mean, that's how weak my limbs were and i'm a strong person i mean i am not i don't work out every day but i mean that, this is that was just very odd um that that has obviously gone away at this point but that was that was not that was scary to me i mean I, my body was really decompensating my nausea was horrible at that point um moving into the next few days i'm still having these experiences i'm really starting to analyze what's going on why is this happening to me Granted, I didn't have a mild case, but particularly for young, healthy people, they seem to be getting better after two weeks. And so I I really did not understand why this was happening. We go on, we move into April now, this is still happening. I'm losing my kind of motivation to now be one of these frontline workers. (laughs) I'm realizing I, I cannot call my case mild by any means. Um, and I went, that that started to turn into. We get to April 4th, which was my daughter's fourth birthday, and I sang Happy Birthday twice. We did it over Zoom, one of those group calls, video calls, and I probably should have gone to the hospital that day, but I didn't. Um, I was had to go to bed. I could not breathe. I developed a croup cough. And if you've ever heard that, it's like a seal barking. That's the day that I really could feel my larynx and my whole, my trachea tightening and then becoming inflamed. And it felt like somebody was cutting off my oxygen. And that's, I mean, my pulse ox was 91. So it was being cut off. I did not go to the hospital. I was determined not to be in the hospital that day. (laughs) It was my daughter's birthday.
0: I think it's becoming kind of clear that doctors really do make bad patients.
2: Yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We don't want to be patients. That's exactly right. I'm, yeah. So, but here's the thing. So I woke up again, though, the next day feeling a little better. And so I had no headache. My, I could lift my arms. I slept great that night. I mean, it's just a roller coaster of symptoms. But then all of a sudden my husband comes over to me in the middle of the day and he sticks a thermometer in my mouth and my temperature is up over a hundred again. And I start to have body aches and here we go downhill. It's literally, if you picture yourself on a roller coaster that just goes up, up and down, that's, I was on it.
0: And this was what, uh, was this like day day
2: 20, day 20. And then the next day was okay again. I mean, it just. This went on and on um, until, let's fast forward to day uh, 23, which was Wednesday the 8th. And now I get a new symptom, which was this, or I had had it a little bit the night before. Now, this is a different type of belt around the chest. It was, and I actually could see it, and I still have this pressure, swelling, tightness, Right under my upper rib cage, my upper abdomen area, kind of where your first two ab muscles are, is protruding a bit. I'm a pretty thin person, so you can see this. It feels like someone has blown up an inner tube around that area, all the way around my back, about one inch below my sternum. And it's a horrible feeling. It's just not a good feeling. It's a lot it's painful. It's more pain than shortness of breath. So I did go to the hospital again the next day because of that. Um, my fever continues. It, that day it was almost 102, which is not good for me. Previously, before the 8th, which was day 23, I started to be able to lay back a bit in bed and still breathe, which was exciting. But on day 23, I was right back up to like 80 degrees. I could not breathe. So that I was very, very frustrated. So I go back to the hospital.
1: Yeah,
0: and that was that we had spoken on, I think, Tuesday, <laughs> yes. and we were, you and I were going to have this conversation for the podcast on Thursday, and then, but I I think I had sent you an email or I had sent you a text message, and I didn't hear back, and I thought, oh man, I wonder if something has happened, and then I got your text saying, yeah, I had to go back to the hospital.
2: Yes, and do you remember how certain I was that I was fine? <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, I know you were saying, yeah, I'm over it now. I can talk about it now because I'm, it's all done. But- <laughs>
2: yes. And you were being so kind. You were saying, if you need to take a break, I said, I'm not going to need a break. I'm really feeling better. And then I had to text you and say, I'm in the hospital. We'll need to reschedule. Yes. So there I was again, 93 pulse ox on the, po- uh, on, I believe I sent you a picture. You can see the 93 in the background but then it went back up to a hundred. I did get diagnosed uh, with costocondritis costochondri- and pleuritis, uh, which is essentially swelling, inflammation. It's from me forcing breaths for three over three weeks into my body and out of my body, and so some things are swollen and and inflamed. The lining of my lungs, you know, I mean, it sounds scarier than than it is, but it is painful, and so. That was a good, honestly, of all the things that could be, I was happy to have that diagnosis. And so I was again discharged. but so I'm still dealing with that. but but overall, I'm continuing to improve. As you can tell, my shortness of breath has has dissipated significantly. I certainly couldn't talk like this and walk around at the same time, but um, I'm talking a lot and fine. and in general, I'm feeling so much better. I do have the pain, but, hey, After everything I just explained, I will take it.
0: You had, even after you got out of the hospital, you said there was a a scary episode on Sunday morning, which would have been, that was day 27. Can you describe that?
2: This was odd. I mean, I would imagine it would be like someone with asthma, having an asthma attack. I mean, I, I don't know, but it was like my throat was closing up. I mean, I, but, but more so, with respiration. I could not get air in and it kept happening and happening. And I don't have an inhaler. I mean, no one has, I have taken not one thing until I just got the inflammation diagnosis. Uh, Nothing. I haven't taken any of these new drugs they're talking about to treat COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin. I haven't taken anything. I didn't get prescribed an inhaler. Some patients do just as a preventative measure, and I'm fine with that, but I was scared. I mean, we actually looked up online, you know, can we get an inhaler really quick? Where can we go quickly i hadn't even thought about it but it went away after about 15 minutes um and that was frustrating again because i had started to feel better again um and and here's it was very brief so i'm hoping that and it hasn't really happened to that extent at least again but maybe that was the last little blip on the radar for me i don't know
0: you certainly paid your price <laughs> I mean, as we record this, I think today would be day 29.
2: That is and correct.
0: Yeah. Obviously, you've been able to, you've told the story. We've been talking here for more than an hour, and you sound like you're okay.
2: I feel, yeah, it's it's nice for me to see too. Thank you for that. I do. I feel I feel great. I'll probably pass out when we get off the front. <laughs> I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> well, I hope not. If you do, don't tell me, okay? Uh, I
2: will. I will. Don't worry. I signed that release. Don't worry. <laughs>
0: If you had to, I mean, if you had to go back, went back to the beginning and knew uh, what was going to happen over the next few weeks, would you have tried to have some of that treatment or some of the medication to fight off the infection? Do you think that would have helped?
2: You know, I mean, we could speculate about a lot. And here's the thing. It has helped a lot of people. And I'm so happy to hear that. I'm very much a research-based individual, both personally and professionally, um, and you know, I don't, I, I just, I don't know that we have. I, well, I do know we don't, we don't have the data to support it yet. That any, any line of treatment or, or therapy, you know, antiviral therapy, and who knows? What if it would have made things worse? I mean. Honestly, at the end of the day, I'm happy. There's so many people that have lost loved ones. There's so many people who have, have perished themselves. And, and I have to say, in a very painful, horrible manner. And I'm so thankful that no one that I know, at least, um, and I haven't inadvertently, um, to my knowledge, at least, um, infected anyone, certainly not my parents, to the level that they would you know, have shown symptoms. And that I'm alive. So who knows? I mean, there's clinical trials going on now for that. And I'm very excited to see where, where we are, you know, and even two weeks from now and what we know about research and treatment.
0: Right. Yeah. We're learning something every day. What are your thoughts on there's some of the suggestions like, you know, being circulated on the internet to boost the immune system, like garlic, vitamins, exposure to sunlight. Do you have any opinion on those things?
2: Oh, yeah, those things are perfect to do. They totally work. No, um, I think we're all, um, you know, I, so many people have reached out to me and asked me these questions. And I think what people are looking for is hope. And that makes us feel safe. And just like when people would make fun of me for being so clean and so, you know, uh, sanitized. <laughs> um, you know that made me feel comfortable, and I think that's what those things are unfortunately. I don't you know when we it comes to true empirically validated scientific research, we do not have data that suggests that any of those new new methods or food groups or vitamins, um none of that unfortunately, I cannot support that it wards off a coronavirus or or Any virus, um, you know, but we do know social distancing, washing your hands. I mean, those are things that we can do, at least for for some people um, that will mitigate the prevalence rates we're seeing.
0: But what about, you know, some people might say, you know, look at Kimberly. She took all these precautions to stay clear and, and she still got infected. So what's what's the point?
2: Right, right. Well, you have to remember what I do. I mean, I see a lot of patients. So I am, despite my little six and a half foot inner quarantine within the same exam room with people, respiratory droplets travel. You know, there, they, there's people that have this, and they are asymptomatic, and so not that they meant to, but I think that's probably how I got it, that there was somebody carrying the virus they, the person did not know it, we had a verbal exchange, you know, now we do know research has shown that the aerosolization, which means, you know, once something is in the air, once the virus is in the air, it can stay in the air for hours. So what if I walked down one of those hallways by myself, feeling good, and I took in a deep breath, let's say I didn't have a mask on, or I mean, I wasn't wearing N95 masks. So I took a breath in, and the person had been there two hours prior,
0: or it could have it could have been there ten minutes prior. You wouldn't have seen them anyway. So
2: I wouldn't have seen that no, right. And so it could have been there. And so, I mean, unfortunately, I think I just had more opportunities for exposure. Um, but I don't that this should not discourage people from following those same guidelines.
0: Why did you want to come on here and tell your story?
2: Not because I want sympathy, not because I think, this is super cool, um, is, is because I, I still am in disbelief. I mean, I just, um, I think it's important for people to know some of these factors, you know, that the messages we're getting, and I'm not blaming anyone. I mean, I think our country's doing the best job it can of, of controlling this and um, to the best of its ability. But, you know, the, I think the main messages that people are getting, particularly lay persons, you know, do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Have you traveled to China? I mean, that, that early on, um, I didn't do any of those things, and so people don't know what a fever is for themselves. Um, you know, I just want people to think about this. You know, just because you're young, you know, we saw all those people at the beaches on spring break early on, and that's really when I decided to do something. And we're now day 29 into this, but I started making a timeline. I started making this, this public on my, you know, social media, which I'm not a social media person. You can attest to the difficulty I had getting my earbud things turned on for this interview. I'm private. I don't, I don't post pictures. I mean, I just, that's not who I am. But when I saw that people think they're invincible, particularly young, healthy people. And um, that's why. That's why I wanted to to show you're not and it's not going to be a mild case for everybody, um, even if you're healthy.
0: If someone's listening to this right now who has tested positive, what would you say to them?
2: I would say that this is a very individualized process and we don't know why it's happening the way it is. We don't know exactly when symptoms are going to come what your symptoms are going to be, how long it's going to last just to take it one day at a time and not to jump right back into life the day you feel better, Um, not to go back out into the community, even if it's been seven days since your first symptom, even if you're afebrile, which means you have no fever, I would just encourage them to take it one day at a time.
0: You're right. There is no such thing as a typical case, but- it seems like your case definitely lasted longer than what we're hearing for you know for most for most people.
2: Well, I have to say, in my first hospital visit before I left, the the ED doc said, uh, "Yeah, we're hearing this thing goes on about thirty days." <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, that's again, you know, I think the medical community a lot of times gets information before the general public or before it's shared publicly, which is probably okay because we don't, you know, who knows, what if we're just seeing that in our little area of the hospital, or, you know, we have to kind of have information that seems to be the right information before we share it publicly. But, you know, I don't, I don't think it's unheard of, I think it's unheard of, or it's less normal for a young, healthy person to have this type of response. But who knows? And like I said, I'm just really excited to see what we're going to learn in the next certainly the next several months, but even in the coming weeks from researchers.
0: Right. And long-term, hopefully we'll have a vaccine. Yes. We'll all get the flu shot and the COVID-19 shot every
2: (laughs) year. Yeah. Well, I I fear that might be our new normal.
0: Well, Kimberly, thanks for coming on. I appreciate that. And certainly wish you to have a continued recovery and completely be symptom-free.
2: Thank you so much for letting me share my story. And I wish everyone good health.
0: As I mentioned earlier, you can read Kimberly's article about her day-to-day symptoms. The link to that is in the show notes for this episode. And for an update on Kimberly, I spoke to her again about a week after we recorded that conversation and she was still experiencing some symptoms that are keeping her from 100% recovery. Hopefully, by the time you hear this, she has actually fully recovered. And I wanted to mention a couple of other items. First. On this podcast, I typically decline to cover stories that are primarily medically related. I've done a few early on, but overall I feel that most of them just aren't intriguing enough. Kimberly's story of going through the coronavirus infection I felt was different because it's something literally everyone in the world is aware of, and all of our lives are being affected by it right now. And by right now, I'm talking about April of 2020. If you're listening to this episode a year from now, or five years from now, maybe this story gave you a little insight into what it was like. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that the What Was That Like podcast now has a YouTube channel. So if you like listening to podcasts on YouTube, you'll be able to do that. You won't see the guest and myself talking on the video, though. The video portion will be the transcribed words that are being spoken. So far, I have maybe a third of the episodes converted to video and loaded on the YouTube channel, and I'm working on getting them all up, but it's kind of a slow process. If you'd like to check it out, you can see it at whatwasthatlike.com YouTube, and feel free to subscribe. So stay safe, and I'll see you again in two weeks.